Good morning, Crossy family. I hope you are doing well, and uh, we miss you. Uh, we had a wonderful uh, in-person service this morning, and uh, it was good to see some faces we haven't seen for the last six, seven months. And uh, uh, But uh, we're excited that you could join us online here, and we have a lot of things going on, and so we want to um, keep you up to date. So hopefully you were able to follow the announcements that Pastor John shared with us. Uh, we hope that you are all healthy and doing well, and if you have any prayer requests uh, each week, we want to spend some time praying for our church, so please uh, let us know. You can email me or uh, any of the other pastors, um, and we want to pray for you, so uh, we want to keep that in mind. Also, we just want to uh, give a big shout-out, congratulations to Jennifer and Juan. They had uh, their son, Reagan, and so we're, we thank God for them and a healthy baby and uh, we look forward to seeing him. And so we have just a lot of uh, positive, wonderful news, even during times like this. Uh, you know, also, we ask that you uh, spend a moment to uh, bow your heads with me at this time. We want to pray for President Trump and uh, his recovery, his, the First Lady, and all those who were affected. And this news, uh, I'm sure, shocked you as it did me. Um, but we want to pray for our leaders as God has called us to do so. And so if you would bow your heads with me just for a moment. Lord, we lift up uh, President Trump, the First Lady. We lift up all those who uh, had contracted this uh, COVID-19. God, we ask for a speedy recovery. Would you watch over them? Would you watch over uh, our country and all those who are leading in such a difficult time? Uh, so, God, we ask your grace upon them. And, uh, Lord, would you watch them? And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we've been in really a waiting time, right? I mean, this is last six, seven months we've been just waiting. And if you were to um, be able to do whatever you wanted, I, let me ask you, what, would you, what, do you, what do you miss doing, right? What are you waiting to do? Um, some of the things that came to mind is I can't wait to go watch a Dodgers game in person uh, when it's crowded. I can't wait to go watch a basketball game in person or go see the Ram Stadium in person uh, with people in it. I uh, can't wait to go to a good restaurant where it's crowded and people are bumping into each other. And so I think those things we miss. I miss handshakes. I miss hugs. Uh, not being able to do that is very awkward and uh, weird. And I miss worshiping together. I miss hearing uh, the church sing and worship God in unison in one voice and us uh, shaking hands and hugging and praying. And so those are things we miss, and we've all been waiting. But none of us like to wait. Uh, I mean, if I could ask you, you know, how do you feel about waiting? Uh, you probably all hate it. You could try to avoid it as much as possible. If I ask you, how many of you enjoy a long wait, right? How many of you enjoy waiting at the drive-thru or at the market and being in the slowest line? or waiting at the doctor's office and uh, looking at your phone over and over. Well, if the outcome is not worthwhile or the person we're waiting for is not worthwhile, it's not worth it, right? If we don't get what we want, it's not worth it. If we're waiting on Black Friday for that one TV and we get it, it's worth it. Uh, but if we wait for no reason, it's not worth it. You know, there's a, I remember when I was a senior in high school, I ended up getting a ticket, actually two tickets in one year. And for the second one, they uh, said I had to come see the judge, and I had to go to the courthouse 
on a Saturday at 7 a.m. And now for a 17-year-old high school senior boy, 7 a.m. is punishment enough, but I had to go there. And I remember getting there at 7 a.m., and they lined us up, and they treated us like we were criminals. And we finally got to go in to see the judge in the room there. And when we got to go into the room, you know, the officer there is barking out directions to us. Don't leave. Come up when you're called. No talking allowed. Uh, no sleeping allowed. And so you had to sit there. And so I sat in the room filled with about 75 people, and the judge would call us up one at a time. And this is in the 80s, so we didn't have smartphones. We couldn't have even fathomed it. I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring a magazine. And we sat there. And so from 8 a.m., I was looking at people. I was actually counting, and some of us did this, counting the number of holes in the ceiling in each of those tiles and trying to kill time. 8 o'clock turned into 9 o'clock. Name wasn't called. 10 o'clock, my name's not called. 11 o'clock, name's not called. Now I look around the room, and now there's five people, four people, three people, two people. 11.55, the last person sitting there is me. And the judge looks at me like, what are you doing here? And I'm looking at him like, what am I still doing here? And he asked me, what am I doing there? I said, well, I'm waiting for my name to be called. And he looks, there's no more papers. So the officer that's there is running around, and he, the judge calls me up. And that day, I happened to be wearing my high school football uh, letterman jacket. And he asked me what position I played. And at this time, I'm so annoyed, right? I'm so upset and annoyed. And he wants to make small talk, and I just want to get out of there. I want to pay my fee, hopefully get traffic school, and go. And he asked me what position I played. I said I played some offensive line, linebacker. And then he went on this whole talk about how linemen get no credit. They get all the blame, and they do all the hard work. And at this time, I'm like, okay, okay, whatever. It's lunchtime. And what had happened was my paper had slipped out of the officer's hand, out of the pile. It had fallen under the desk. So the judge didn't even get it. So he found it. I found it, and he brings it over. And the judge says to me, well, I like linemen. They work hard. They, get no, they, they don't get any of the credit. So I'm going to let you go. I'll sign this ticket off. Don't worry about it. So my sorrow had turned to joy, right? My anger had turned to happiness. And I asked him, do I have to go to traffic school? He goes, no, no, no traffic school. Do I have to pay any money? He said, no, no, no money. It's all paid for. Go your way. And I thought, oh, I love this judge. You know, I'm so glad I, they lost my paper. And I was the last one. What we wait for, if it's worth the wait, the waiting isn't so bad. Uh, today, we're all waiting. We're waiting for things to open up, but we're really waiting on God. And God is worth the wait. Let me encourage you. God is worth the wait, and he has something great for you. And so it is okay to wait on him. Universally, all of us are going through a waiting period, waiting for the vaccine, waiting for things to get back to normal. And maybe individually, all of you are going through something very different. Uh, you're waiting for those test results. You're waiting for a new job. You're waiting for healing. You're waiting for this. You're waiting for that. But if God is in your life, it's okay to wait. And I want to encourage you with that. You know, we're starting this new series in the Gospel of Luke. And a lot of you have got uh, our journals here that we're giving out for free. 
you can come by the office if you want to get one. Uh, we'll give you this, um, and uh, it's you know obviously has a journaling area, and this is a big hefty book, right? Luke is the longest book in the New Testament, so there's quite a bit we're going to be going through for the next uh, year almost, right? Up till next summer, I think we'll be going through Luke and then some, and so this will be very precious for you to have and so make sure you pick one up you could buy it yourself if you don't want to come out here but we do have some for free uh, that we bought for you but we see that uh, God is worth the wait and uh, he goes to Zechariah and Elizabeth these are the first person that are approached by God and they've been waiting Israel's been waiting for God and God comes with the answer of Christ ultimately uh, to him let me give us a little background though on Luke um, just to some interesting things about this wonderful book it's a book about good news it's a book about the good news that's given to all people that God wants to save and transform all people uh, it doesn't matter what you've done where have you been what people think of you what your status is God loves you and so in this book of Luke we see this happening over and over and Warren Wearsby says it this way it sums up the book he says if ever a man wrote a book filled with good news for everybody Dr. Luke is the man. Uh, Dr. Luke is that man, he says, right? Um, and so we see that here. So he, Luke, in this telling of the Gospels, speaks often about the people on the outside, the outcasts, the people on the periphery, the, the people who are, uh, their status is lower. People look down upon them. And just uh, some highlights here. He, he highlights Samaritans. Samaritans were looked down upon. They were looked upon as... Uh, down upon as kind of like these half uh, uh, breeds, if we could say. They were looked upon almost like we might treat a mutt versus a purebred. And so Samaritans were looked down upon. The Gentiles were looked upon as outsiders. But in the Gospel of Luke, those groups are mentioned over and over in a favorable light. So, for example, only Luke talks about the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, and who's the hero of that? It was a Samaritan. It wasn't a Jew. It wasn't a priest. It wasn't uh, one of the religious leaders. It was a Samaritan. And so they're looked upon in a positive way. You remember the ten lepers. When they're healed, only one comes back to give thanks. And Luke is the only one he tells us that the one that came back was actually a Samaritan. And so when the people around, when the religious righteous think of Samaritans, they think they're, they have a bad uh, lineage and their ancestors are all mixed up and it's, they're no good. Luke shows us that God looks upon the people on the outside as in a favorable light. He talks also about tax collectors in a favorable way, tax collectors and sinners. Gospel of Luke, for example, mentions tax collectors 11 times, Mark only does twice. The uh, Gospel of Luke records the story about Zacchaeus coming to faith. Uh, Zacchaeus, who was the infamous tax collector who comes to faith and, Jesus, and welcomes Jesus into his house. And so these are positive stories about people who were in sin, being called by God through the Gospel, and now being changed and being used. Um, the story about the tax collector and Pharisee and the contrasting styles of how they prayed. You remember that story is mentioned as well. And uh, the Pharisee stands in the front. He's proud of all that he is and that he gives so much and he's such a good person. Whereas the tax collector, Luke tells us, is beating his chest and crying. Woe is me. Who is heard by God? It was a tax collector. 
Also, women are mentioned uh, quite a bit in the book of Luke, more than the other Gospels. Uh, it brings the prominence of women to hear their stories. Uh, it's mentioned all throughout. And even in the first chapter, the introduction of the birth of Christ, later on we'll see uh, Elizabeth's perspective, Elizabeth the aunt of Jesus, Elizabeth the uh, mother of John, who we'll look at today. It gives us, uh, Luke tells us Mary's perspective. Like for example, in Matthew, he only gives Joseph's perspective. And so we see so much, so much robust uh, details about this. And also, he, we know that he is a physician. Uh, Colossians 4.14 describes him as the beloved physician. Paul speaks of him this way. They travel together, work together. And so Luke writes in a way that only a physician would write. There are cer certain things. A couple things is Luke actually uses the word physicians. He calls Christ uh, the great physician or the one that the sick people need in Luke 5.31. Uh, he says, uh, in so various places, he speaks about physicians. He has details that maybe only a doctor would see. So in Luke chapter 6, uh, there's a story with the man with the withered hand. And Matthew and Mark doesn't tell us which hand, but Luke, the doctor, notices it was his right hand the right hand that people would use to greet others, the right hand they would use, you know, uh, and how important that was. And so he remembers details like that. It was important to him as a doctor. Uh, when Peter brings his mother-in-law to Jesus because she is ill with a fever, Matthew and Mark tell us she had a fever, but only Luke tells us it was a high fever. And you know, when you go to the doctor's office and they take your temperature, and the nurse takes your temperature, and they now determine how sick you are by how high your fever is. So if you have a 99-something, they'll say, well, it's not really a fever. Don't worry about it. But if you're spiking up to 104, 103, 105, it is an emergency. And so Luke notices this was a serious case. It wasn't that she had a mild fever that she could rest it off. It was a high fever. There must have been something wrong. And so there are instances throughout, and we'll be going through this, where we see the eyes of a physician as guided by God the Holy Spirit he pens this wonderful book and he starts out by now answering uh, the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth getting their prayers answered they've been waiting and God answers them through the visit of uh, Gabriel and so I want you to do me a favor and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 uh, Pastor John earlier led us in a section of the reading, but we're going to be going from verse 5 and through just picking out different things uh, about the story, about how uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who end up having John the Baptist as their child, and how Gabriel comes to him. So here's a story. First of all, we see that they're introduced in a very difficult time, and we see in verse 5, Luke 1, 5, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the uh, daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. It's interesting. First of all, it's the, the, during the days of Herod. Herod was a notorious uh, a vicious, a scary ruler. This was the tail end of his rule. Uh, but people feared Herod. Herod had a temper. Herod had ten wives. He killed one of his ten wives 
for no apparent reason. And so people were afraid it was a dark time for the people of God. Not only was it a dark time uh, in a political sense, but it was a difficult time because this is what the uh, theologians or the scholars call the 400 years of silence. 400 years of silence was happening. It was coming to an end here. What that means is for 400 years, from the book of Malachi, the old, end of the Old Testament, all the way to the birth of Christ for four centuries, they didn't hear from God. So they, there were no prophets. There were no angels. There was no audible voice from God speaking to his people. It was 400 years of them waiting in silence. And it seemed like God was not there with them. And it is here that he breaks the silence. So it was a very difficult time, spiritually as well. Uh, he first mentioned Zechariah. Zechariah, the priest, his uh, name means Jehovah has remembered. Jehovah has remembered. And he is in, uh, later in life. And Elizabeth is mentioned, his wife, daughter of a priest. Uh, Elizabeth, meaning God is my oath or God is my promise. It's interesting that when you go to verse 6, they're described both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Verse 7, but they had no child. The but is telling us that the two don't equate, right? For one part, it was assumed falsely, uh, falsely believed that if you were a good person, and if you walked with God in a good way, God will bless you with many children. Now, God blesses us with children, no doubt. But there was a false assumption that if you were barren or you couldn't have children, that you must have not been so good. You must have done something wrong and God was punishing you. And so in this phrase, it says so they were blameless, they were righteous, but they had no child. And so it is as if Luke is reminding the reader, it's not that they have no child as the people falsely believe, wrongly believe that, oh, bad people get no children. No. He says, no, they were good. They were righteous. They were blameless. But she was barren and they had no child and both were advanced in years. He is in the midst of his duty. He is doing his job. Um, Luke 1 8 through 10 tells us he is serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty. So the priests were divided into 24 divisions, and uh, twice a year you would go and serve uh, at different times. And this was his time to serve. Uh, and so he was chosen by Lot, it says in verse 9, to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. It was a privilege to be uh, chosen to go into the temple of God, it was a privilege. And he was chosen by this time. And everyone is outside the temple, waiting for the incense to burn, and they were praying outside as it would happen. Um, and it is in that place that we see the angel of the Lord appear to him. The angel's name is Gabriel, and he appears to him. Verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. So, Luke tells us where. So it's like he's going to the altar, and to the right of the altar now is an angel. And some have tried for many years to figure out what does that mean? What does the placement of being on the right of the uh, altar mean? Is there any theological significance? I don't think there is. I just think that Luke was telling us where he was, right? As he's going, 
Uh, Zechariah was troubled, verse 12, when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his name, at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So it goes on. And then at the end, it points, has a, uh, verse 16 has a reference to him coming with the power of Elijah. So here, uh, let me comment a little bit. The angel is mentioned. 23 times in Luke, angels are mentioned. Throughout the Bible, only two angels are mentioned by name, Gabriel here and Michael as well. Um, and so an angel was not the figure you would see on Valentine's Day. It wasn't a cute cute, chubby, cupid type of baby that you say, oh, how cute. But an angel could be intimidating. Angel could be big. Angel could come. And so they were in fear when they saw the angel. Um, and he says to him, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid is a common theme we'll see throughout the rest of Luke. And he tells him to rejoice. And rejoicing is another common theme we'll see throughout the rest of the book as well. And let me just pause and comment for a moment that we, regardless of our circumstances, are called as Christians to be a people of joy. Do not be afraid. Be joyful. Rejoice. Let me encourage you today to rejoice. What is it that you can be grateful for? Uh, what is it that you have right now that you are so grateful for? Learn to rejoice. Count your blessings daily. Uh, yeah, there are things that are difficult. There are things that are just unnatural. Life is really turned weird, but yet there's a lot of wonderful things. And so rejoice and count your blessings daily. And he says that they will have a son. His name will be John. John means God is gracious. And they will have his son John. John the Baptist will be born to them. John the Baptist was prophesied. The birth of John the Baptist was prophesied in Malachi 4, uh, verse 5 and 6. And I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, and so on. And so that section there in verse 6 is now quoted here in verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit, verse 17 of uh, Luke 1, in his spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. So you see, uh, it sounds very similar. Elijah closes the Old Testament by saying, uh, giving God's word. The prophecy is someone is going to come in the power of Elijah, like Elijah. It won't be Elijah himself, but it will be someone else. And this now is the one who comes like Elijah. In a powerful way, a powerful prophet will come. His name will be John the Baptist. So they're going to have a child. Their prayers will be answered. And we see here now the faithless response of Zechariah. He gets very practical. And if he is like, uh, this will sound a lot like you and a lot like me. You look at all the circumstances and all the doubt, all the excuses will come up. Why maybe Gabriel has the wrong person. Luke 1.18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? And he is explaining to the angel his circumstances as if God didn't know when he sent Gabriel. For I am an old man, my wife is advanced in years. It's interesting, when you pause it, let me get a little bit technical. In verse 18, I am an old man. The word I, 
the commentators talk about how in the original language, it is emphatic. He is telling Gabriel, I, me, I'm the old guy. I am the old man. I am an old man. So he is now casting doubt to himself. Not only that, he explains, my wife is advanced in years. It's as if he's letting Gabriel know, maybe you don't know my situation. Maybe it is so dark in the temple, you don't see all my wrinkles and what an aged man I am. And maybe you think I'm married to someone younger, but actually she's about the same age as me. She is advanced in years. We've been trying to have kids. We couldn't. We're the age where my peers are now grandparents, and you think I am the one, and she is going to be pregnant? Let me correct you. Gabriel responds, and uh, this is where uh, the original language shows us that the word I in verse 19, I am Gabriel. The word I is emphatic. So he says, oh, you are old, huh? You're explaining yourself. Well, Gabriel, in, in an emphatic way, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So his I there is emphatic. He's letting him know, do you know who is talking to you? You think you know who you are, but do you know who's talking to you? And it is at this point that uh, the angel keeps him from being able to talk, and he comes out of the temple, and people are waiting. What happened? What happened? And he says, you cannot speak. I'm going to make you mute until John is born. And he comes out, and the people are waiting for the priestly benediction. And that tradition continues today. You'll, at the end of service, I give the benediction or a pastor gives the benediction. We raise our hands and we give a, a blessing to the people. And over the centuries, that has continued in the church. And often it is the pastor would go and uh, touch and bless every person as they would leave. And as the churches grow, uh, tradition has changed to represent the touch or the benediction or the blessing. But he cannot talk. So he comes out of the temple and people are saying, you were in there a long time. There was something weird going on. What's going on? And he cannot talk. So you can imagine him doing charades, right? We've played that game. And maybe he was trying to do angel and uh, that his wife's going to give birth and they're, and they're trying to guess what he is saying. It was probably almost a ridiculous scene if you think about this. And eventually, John is born to Elizabeth and then... He is able to speak afterwards. There's a couple lessons from here. And there were so many, I, I, I wanted to shrink this down to just a couple, just two. During this time, let me encourage you. Uh, doubt will creep up when you look at just your circumstances. But your faith will creep up and rise up when you keep looking at God. So don't just doubt and look at your circumstances. Don't count all the negative things that are against you, all the marks that are against you. I don't make enough money. I don't have enough. I don't have this. I don't have that. You could count and you could look at all of that and God might be calling you to do something radically. You say, God, look at my situation. I'm on the end of the have-nots. I don't have that much. And you could count all the negatives and your doubt will creep up as Zechariah did. Zechariah said, look at me, I'm old. Not only am I old, my wife is old. How are we supposed to have children? This makes no sense. And the moment he takes his eyes and he looks down at all the predicaments and problems, doubt starts to increase. 
But let me encourage you, as Gabriel reminded him, that he stands with God. When we take our eyes off of the things that hinder us and all the excuses that we might be having for why we can't do the things that God wants us to do, take a moment and look up. And as you look to God, your faith will increase. So don't let doubt increase. Let faith increase in your life. It is Dallas Willard who talks about skepticism in our days. We live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost uh, be as stupid as a cabbage as long as you doubt. Right? This professor, late professor at USC, he would say, um, and he would teach us, that the culture of our day says doubting is smart. You should doubt. No, we should trust. And I don't know what you are going through. And if you were to sit there and look at your predicament and look at all the things, that will creep up. And let me encourage you every morning, before you turn on the bad news, before you think about what you're losing, what you're losing out upon, before you even look on social media and you see, boy, so-and-so is having a good time. I'm not having this good time. And you're thinking about those things. Look at God. Look towards God. Open up the Word and spend some time and just look and your faith will increase. The doubt will decrease. Why does he make him mute? I thought about this. There's no real explanation. But he makes him mute. He had lack of faith. He makes him mute. I think that he didn't want Zechariah to talk himself out of this. Talk the doubt into his own belief. Let me encourage you. Don't even listen to yourself. Don't believe yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. And maybe you are in a habit of listing off all the negative things in your life, all the hardships. Your house isn't nice enough. Your job isn't secure enough. Uh, your kids aren't talented or smart enough. Uh, you're not strong enough. Whatever your situation is, just be still. And look to God. Focus on Him. He silences Zachariah so he doesn't put a a seed of doubt in his own mind or that he would not plant a seed of doubt in those around him. He was going to come out and speak. He was going to talk to Elizabeth. He can't get these words out. He can't get the doubt out. And God gives him some time to not speak but to listen, to look up to him and to realize he's answering his prayers. The second lesson here is God blesses us in his perfect timing and whatever he's blessed us with, he wants us to use it for his glory, not hoard it. It is tempting. When God gives us something precious, what is so precious to you? Your child, your marriage, your house, your business, your health, whatever it is, so precious to you. Let me encourage you. Not to say, I'm going to hoard it for myself, but let me use it for God's blessing. You could imagine when Elizabeth and Zechariah had this news that they're going to finally have a child. Now, it is very different for a couple who is older, right? We've seen it in our day, in our culture. You might know some people like this who have been struggling to have a child. And they waited years and maybe even decades. And in their old age, they have a child. And I see people who are older and they have that one child, they really dote and love that child. 
a lot differently than someone who is young and has a bunch of children and they think, boy, I hope uh, a majority of them does well. But you can imagine for Zachariah and Elizabeth how precious this child was going to be. And the temptation was going to be now to hoard this child, protect this child, don't let anyone near this child. Right? Let this child be sheltered and let me give whatever I can for this child so that the child doesn't have to face any hardships or any difficulties, no challenges, and they're watching the child in this way. But God gives them the answer to their prayers by giving them a son. But he also answers the prayer of Israel by giving them now the one who was to come in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist has a difficult life in a worldly sense. He has a life that he is out eating locusts and camel's hair. He's preaching the gospel of repentance. He's ended up beheaded early in his life. Uh, but yet he is in God's will. He is used by God. And so what does God bless you with? What do you have that's so precious? It might be a material thing. Maybe you got a new car. You're afraid people are going to dirty up your car. Right? Uh, whatever it is, we want to be able to use it. And let me encourage you to say, God, this is what I have. God, this is my child. These are my kids. I love them. You love them more. And for them to be in the will of God, to be obedient in God, is the best thing for them. The irony is that sometimes we even try to shield our children even from the Lord. Because we think, boy, what if God does something to them? I don't want them. Maybe they could just grow up somewhat of a good person, agnostic, go to church once in a while. But what if God demands something of them? What if they have to serve others and it's so hard? No, that is the place that is the most blessed on this earth. That they are being used by God in this way. And this is the picture we see here. God gives them the grace to know. He gives them the faith to understand. That is not just a personal prayer request that's answered. But God in His sovereignty has given them a child and it will be now the, the match of all the prophecy that was going to happen in Israel. That He was going to be used in great ways. And let God use this time. What has He blessed you with? Be generous with it. Don't hoard it. And what are the excuses you have for not loving God, serving God? Uh, what makes it so hard? What are the impossibilities that you think lie ahead of you? Don't look at those things in doubt. Look up to God and see what He will do. Through the birth of the Son, Jesus Christ is now on the scene. And He comes in grace and truth to all the people the outcasts like you and me, and because of the work that is done here. And so may Christ be glorified in your life, uh, in the gifts that God has given to you uh, during this time. I'm going to pray for us, and we're gonna, I'm going to lead you in communion. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you love us in this way. You answer our prayers. You are worth the wait. And Jesus Christ, we remember you today. Uh, the body that was broken, the blood that was shed for us. Remember the sacrifice and the love that you give to us. So we take this and we ask you, bless us. In our homes, as many of us are taking communion, we ask you, bless us here. As we're sitting in our living rooms or on our desk, God, we take this 
uh, knowing that you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.